Hi Traders Point, Happy New Year. This is uh, Wallace and Mary Kamau, founders and directors, Missions of Hope International Kenya. We are excited to share with you an update on uh, what is happening at the site of the new school in Kirifi County. We are standing at the site where the new school is coming and we can't wait till it's finished. We are so happy to partner with Traders Point. We are so excited because of the work that is going on at Kibarani community. The new school is coming up so well and we can't wait to see how God continues to transform lives in this community. We are trusting God that in the next few months, the phase one of our Kibarani school will be completed and over 300 boys and girls who have been identified in this community will be able to start school in a Christian environment where we are going to have Christian teachers loving on them. We are going to have these children receive two meals a day. Their basic health care will be taken care of and they'll get to know Jesus because of your generosity. We are just so excited and so blessed to have you as our partners, Traders Point. We are so grateful because of your partnership with us, Traders Point. We will continue to pray together with you during this challenging times of COVID-19 as you also pray together with us. God bless you. Wasn't that amazing? Uh... Uh, th that's really cool. I hadn't seen that video yet, and I was there in uh, summer of 2019 when that was just a piece of land. So that's really cool to see. Hey, uh, what's up, Traders Point family? Good to see all of you. I want to welcome all of our physical locations, overflow spaces, those of you joining us online. Really glad to have you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Song of Songs. Uh, in your Bible, it may be called Song of Solomon. It's the same thing, uh, but that's where we're going to be today. And uh, before we get rolling, I uh, just got something to celebrate and some information to share with you. Um, it was hard to believe, but a year ago this Sunday that we made the difficult decision to um, stop physical uh, worship gatherings and go completely online when the pandemic started. It was a year ago this weekend, and uh, we stayed online for six months. And then in September of last year, we began to regather and to rebuild the physical gathering. And our numbers have kind of, you know, kind of gone up and down depending upon how the pandemic has been going. But over the last four or five weeks, we've noticed um, a significant increase in our physical worship gatherings. In fact, I want to show you this uh, graph to uh, kind of illustrate this. This has been since the beginning of the year, but just in the last month or so, we've just seen a significant increase in our physical gathering. Not today, because it's daylight savings. <laughs> I hate today. All right, so uh, I vote we change it to Saturday. All in favor? Yeah, all right. So anyway, I don't think that'll do any good. But anyway... Uh, this is uh, kind of, we just noticed a significant increase in this. And I've talked to people every single Sunday over the past five weeks. I've said this is their first time back in a year or their first uh, time ever because they joined us online during the pandemic. And so they've come to one of our physical gatherings if they live in the Indy area. A number of people have said that uh, Easter is going to be their first time together. So all this is great. We celebrate it. We give God the glory for it. It's really amazing to see. Uh, and yet the problem is, is that uh, we're running out of room. And so we're trying to be uh, conscientious of everybody's comfort and safety. Uh, we've had overflow spaces. Last Sunday, we had more people at all of our physical gatherings than we've had in a year. We had just had people everywhere in all, uh, all, these, all the rooms that we could maximize. Um, and uh, so uh, what I wanted to share with you is that uh, we have prayed about this. We've talked to all the right people. And uh, uh, beginning next weekend, just in preparation for Easter, uh, we're going to remove the every other row restriction in the rooms. Um, 
And, um, and I uh, want you to know that uh, if you're not quite ready for that, there's still going to be overflow spaces in and around the buildings. But here's the reason why, uh, is that we're not trying to like, you know, rush back to any sort of pre-pandemic normal. What we're trying to do is make room for people that are isolated, struggling, need community, uh, need, to, need to come. We don't want to turn anybody away, especially on Easter weekend. And so I uh, just want to uh, express my appreciation to all of your, your grace, your understanding, your cooperation as we rebuild this and navigate this together, all right? Well, uh, if you missed last week, we uh, started a new series of messages called Rally Cry. And uh, the big idea around this is that we want to rally around uh, some significant areas of our lives that have taken a big hit in this past pandemic year. Now, the definition of a rally cry is a word, phrase, or idea that brings people together in support of something important or worthwhile. A rally cry is usually something that happens when our backs are against the wall. And we want to rally around our families, our marriages, our relationships, the mission of the church, because all those things have taken big hits in this past pandemic year. And so last week, if you missed the message, we talked about rallying around our kids, our grandkids, and the next generation. And I said this, is that your most um, significant contribution to the kingdom of God. It may not be something that you do, but someone that you raise or you influence. And I gotta be honest, last week's message like kind of caught me by surprise at the kind of response and feedback that I got. Like it was overwhelming. I just had all kinds of people reaching out. It really struck a nerve. I don't know that I've ever preached a message on parenting that hit that hard. And it doesn't surprise me is because um, we have all taken some big hits uh, in that area of our lives over the last year. Well, today I want to talk about um, marriage. And I've titled this message, Marriage, It's Harder Than You Think, But It's Better Than You Thought. Now, uh, two people clapped at that. All right, so... Um, Lindsay and I, uh, we uh, will celebrate 22 years of marriage this upcoming June. And I know that, um, thank you. Uh, I know that uh, you're thinking, you don't look old enough to be married 22 years. I know, right? <laughs> we got married when we were 12. It was, it was Missouri. It was the 90s. It was a thing. All right. So, um, but Lindsay and I, I think we'd both tell you that um, our marriage has been harder than we thought it would be when we walked the aisle in uh, June of 1999. And it's been better than we thought that it could ever be. It's been both of those things simultaneously. I've told this uh, story before, but many of you haven't heard it. Uh, several years ago, I was in my office. It was like a Monday afternoon. And uh, my uh, office, I have, a, I have a window to the front parking lot. It's very glamorous. And uh, I was looking out the window and my uh, wife walked out the front door and she's walking towards her Suburban. And so I saw this as an opportunity to uh, uh, give her a compliment. And so I texted her and I said, you look hot today. And she texted me right back and she said, I'm at home right now. Who are you looking at? <laughs> True story. And I gotta tell you, like the next like minute felt like an eternity. Like I'm like, what do I do? What do I say? Like, I, and, uh, and then she texted back one word, gotcha. And she, she knows where my office is. She drove by real slowly in the Suburban. She rolled down the window, she had her sunglasses on. She gave me one of these waves. Like that, she did that. See, sometimes in marriage, you gotta laugh because if you don't, like you'll cry. And uh, I know that uh, just like last week, but in a different way, when you hear that um, preaching on marriage or you read the, the title to, that, uh, to, the, to the message today, 
um, it likely evoked a strong emotional response from you. Now, I realize that maybe many of you uh, listening to this today, maybe you're happily married and you're like, man, this is, this is going to be great. Others of you, you're happily married, but that's only because you've been married for two minutes. Just buckle up, right? There's rougher waters ahead. But others of you, this is uh, a bit of a challenging subject. Uh, maybe there's an emotional response that comes when you hear this. Maybe because you're single. And traditionally, the church hasn't necessarily spoken to you or about you in ways that were very helpful. And so maybe you're here today and you're single and not yet married, but want to be one day. Maybe you're single and you used to be married. Maybe you're single and you don't really want to be married. And you sort of have resented the way that maybe the church, even unintentionally, has spoken to and about you. And I just want to just go ahead and address that right up front. And I just want to say this to you, that marriage is not ultimate. All right. You, you are not an incomplete person without it. For starters, Jesus himself never married. He was single his whole earthly life and he lived the most fulfilling life that any human being could ever live. Now, uh, even uh, with that said, let me just say this. All of us are gonna end up single one day. All of us married people will end up single because in heaven, uh, there will be no marriage. And I know for some of you, maybe you've never heard that before and that blows your mind and it makes you sad and confused. And others of you, you have never heard that before. And you're celebrating right now. All right? You're just like, wow, that's amazing. And I don't have time to like unpack the theology around all that in this message just yet. But if you have questions about that, just email rbramlett at tpcc. He's going to so get me back, all right, uh, with all this. All right, now I know on a much more serious note that uh, others of you, this uh, evokes a strong emotional response because maybe you're separated, divorced, or widowed. Maybe this evokes, evokes a, a strong emotional response because Right now, you are stuck in a loveless, affectionless, abusive marriage situation that feels hopeless. And it just doesn't ever feel like you can please her. And it doesn't ever feel like he uh, loves you well. And you're doing everything you can right now to make this marriage work, and it isn't working. Maybe you did all you knew to do to save your marriage, and you still lost it. And the result of that has just been a sense of personal loss and loneliness and guilt. And can I say that the church traditionally has not handled this very well either. And unfortunately, maybe many of you that have experienced divorce, whether uh, you were uh, to blame in that or you shared the blame or maybe it was unwanted, you didn't want it and it happened anyway. And maybe you got the message loud and clear from the church. Well, you're not welcome here anymore. And can I just say, that I'm so sorry, that that is so counter to the heart of God the Father. In fact, Jesus one time was speaking to a woman from Samaria that had a string of broken relationships and the guy she was currently living with, things were severely strained and Jesus spoke to her with tenderness and compassion and a sense of redemption that completely changed her life. Listen to me, God does not hate divorced people. He hates what divorce does to people. He hates the, the loneliness and the shame and the guilt that oftentimes is associated with it. You know who else hates divorce? Divorce people. If you've ever experienced it, if you've ever gone through it, and there is a, a new beginning and a new sense of hope that God the Father wants for you. And so I just wanna thank you for hanging with me today as we talk about this subject, because there's gonna be some application for you, regardless of your marital status or what you've been through. Now, let me just start with this, very similar to what I did last week. There's a reason why marriage is so hard, aside from interpersonal conflict and differences of personality. 
One of the reasons why marriage is so hard is the unfortunate truth that I shared with you last week to kind of kick off this series. And it's simply this. Uh, We have an enemy who's real. He has a name. His name is Satan. And he hates you. And he hates your marriage. And what they didn't tell you the day that you walked the aisle all those years ago, if you're married, is that when you walked the aisle, you walked right into his crosshairs. And he wants to do everything that he can to bring your marriage down. Now, now here's why, all right? Contrary to maybe what you have heard, marriage is not some man-made idea that's sort of been invented by society to, you know, sort of make society a little bit more stable. No, marriage is God's idea. God designed marriage as a reflection of his nature and his love for you and for me. It is his crowning achievement. And so Satan's like, oh, well, that's your crowning achievement. I'll go after that. And it's one of the very first things that he went after. In fact, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Here's what I mean. In Genesis, we see God doing his thing in creation. He created the whole world and he looked back and he thought, man, this is all good, except for one thing, that Adam was alone. And so it says in chapter two, verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while the man slept. The Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. I love these words. Adam goes, at last. At last. And you just see the the sense of celebration and relief that he has in those words. Why? Well, because up until that moment, he was lonely. Now there were animals around and I'm sure that, I mean, all that was great, but he couldn't emotionally connect with an animal. And all of a sudden he's got somebody standing in front of him that is beautiful and she is so much like him and yet distinct from him. And he's like, finally, somebody that I can emotionally and physically connect with, biologically, their bodies fit together, forming an intimate connection. And then it says in verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So the Bible begins with a marriage. Now you fast forward to the very last book of the Bible and it ends with a marriage. John is on the island of Patmos and Jesus is revealing to him. That's where we get the word revelation in the singular, not the plurals. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's the revelation of the new heaven and the new earth from Jesus to John. And he writes these words in chapter 19, verse seven. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. It's capitalized because that refers to Jesus. And his bride, that's us, that's the church, has prepared herself. And so we see that the Bible often uses marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with us, with the, with the, the church. And we see that it is meant to show a sacrificial love that Jesus has for you and for me. So the Bible begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. And smack dab in the middle of the Bible, we get this unfiltered picture of the marriage relationship from Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And if you're not familiar with this great book of the Bible, you need to read it sometime. And this is a collection of anthems written by a married couple later in life as they are reflecting upon the good times and the bad, the ups and the downs of their marriage relationship. And there's so much that we can learn from this. Listen to me, regardless of your current marital status, And the reason why I say that is because Song of Songs is not a romance novel. Song of Songs is a book of wisdom. It is one of the wisdom pieces of literature in the Bible. Uh, There is uh, Job, which gives us wisdom about how to endure suffering. 
There's the Psalms, which is a whole collection of worship anthems written to God. We've been in that a lot lately. There's Proverbs, which is principles of wisdoms for daily living. There's Ecclesiastes, which helps us to understand an overall perspective of life. And then there's Song of Songs, which I find fascinating. It's a book of wisdom on romantic relationships and marriage, which we need more of, by the way. Because many of us, our view of romance and marriage and dating has kind of been uh, informed by Hollywood, uh, romantic comedies, romance novels, all of that. And that all has their place. But uh, we don't uh, use enough wisdom in our romance and our dating and our marriage relationships. And that's the intent of this book, is to shed some wisdom on this really important subject. Because here's the thing is that um, even though your dating relationship and marriage relationship may start off, you know, steamy and kind of hot and heavy, it's not always going to stay there. It's not always inspiring. And this was true for Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. Look at what it says in chapter one, verse two, at the beginnings of their relationship. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. That's in the Bible, you know. And then it goes on and they're talking to each other. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. And she responds and she goes, well, you're so handsome, my love. Pleasing beyond words. And then uh, we see on, on down, uh, he, he goes, like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. And then she comes right back and she goes, well, like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples for I am weak with love. Like I'm blushing reading this right now. And this is such, and it, and it gets much more R-rated than that, all right? I encourage you to check it out sometime. And I would just say that this is such a fun time in the life of every budding relationship. It's like the sweet nothings, it's the flirting, it's the, it's the hot and heavy talk. And I, I would highly recommend it. Uh, and I would highly recommend that you keep it alive in your marriage relationship. You know, uh, Lindsay, I, I, I just, uh, she's, She's, she's just no longer surprised anymore at how I can take ordinary things she might say to me around the house and I'll just make them sexual. <laughs> and she'll be like, honey, I think that the tires need to be rotated. And I'll be like, I'd like to rotate your tires. <laughs> she'll be like, can you please unload the dishwasher? I'll be like, after I unload your dishwasher. She's like, what does that even mean? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm, I'm reaching at this point, right? So it's a lot of fun. However, um, not realistic to think that your relationship's always gonna stay at that kind of hot and heavy, steamy level year after year. Why? why? Well, because, you know, uh, life, we, we go through changes, right? Circumstances change, bodies change, looks change, beliefs change, perspectives change, feelings change, jobs change, emotions change, finances change, friends change, kids for sure change, a whole bunch of things. Can I get a good amen? amen. Making it really challenging even for the most compatible couples. I love what pastor and author Tim Keller says about it. He says, marriage is the most vulnerable relationship there is. Here's why. You get exposed for who you really are. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. See, whenever it comes to our dating relationships, many, many times we are presenting the best possible version of ourselves. It's like one long extended uh, job interview. And this is uh, kind of revealed in uh, whenever they ask a bunch of kids questions on dating and marriage relationships. Um, Mike, age uh, 10, whenever they asked about uh, dating, he said, well, on the first date, you just tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. 
And then uh, we go to the next one. Um, Jan, age nine. Well, why do people fall in love? And she's like, well, no one knows for sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. And uh, Pam, AJ, when is it okay to kiss someone? She says, when they're rich. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, Pam. Um, Ricky, age 10, how can you make a marriage work? Well, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> and then um, Judy, age eight, what's the right age to get married? 84, because at that age, you don't have to work anymore and you can spend all your time loving each other in your bedroom, all right? It's like, wow, Judy, uh, not quite sure of your perspective there. Sounds good though. Um, See, what happens in, in dating, uh, in courtship, is that we present the best possible version of ourselves. But in, in marriage, it just isn't possible to hide or pretend or cover up your flaws, your weaknesses, and your imperfections from this other person for very long. Eventually, like the masks come off. But here's the deal. That, that, that isn't necessarily all bad news. The masks come off, which can be an opportunity for greater intimacy if you apply wisdom to the relationship or it's an opportunity for greater distance, just depending upon how you navigate it. See, what was endearing oftentimes to you in your dating relationship can easily become annoying to you in your marriage relationship. And that's when we have conflict. And this was true for Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. By the time we get to chapter five, all the sweet nothings have disappeared. It's very obvious that a conflict has arisen and he has moved out of the apple orchard and into the doghouse. And look at what it says in chapter five, verse two. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. What I want you to see is that this is a, a picture where she is in bed, but she can't sleep. Her heart is awake, meaning that she is filled with emotion. She's tossing and she's turning. Maybe earlier that evening, they got into an argument. She snapped at him. He said something mean about her mother. She stormed out. He slammed the door. Maybe they've both been working a lot lately. They've, been, they've just been missing each other. And perhaps the problem is that they haven't been communicating very well. And there's been this growing distance between the two of them. But whatever the specific issue is, there's tension in the relationship. And it's the middle of the night when he knocks on her door. And he says, open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now, what I want you to see is that this is early morning. His, his hair is dampened by the dew. And he, and he knocks on the door and this is his attempt at an apology. And she's not ready to receive his apology yet. Look at verse three. She says, but I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? Yeah, that's not good. Like we know right there that she is not happy and she wants him to know it. This is a whole lot different from what she said to him earlier in verse 16 when she invited him into her garden to taste its finest fruits. And I think it's really important to be reminded of the fact that in every relationship, even very healthy ones, conflict is inevitable. Whenever you put two flawed, sinful, imperfect people together, they're eventually gonna hurt each other. They're eventually gonna have a disagreement. They're eventually gonna have these expectations that they brought into the marriage relationship that the two are not fulfilling. Now, listen to me, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your relationship or that you married the wrong person. Conflict is normal. And some of you grew up in a home where your parents never let you see them fight. 
You just never saw them argue. And then you got married and all of a sudden you had an argument and it rocked your world because you thought something's wrong. Like our marriage is messed up. Maybe I married the wrong person. And this unfortunately gets fed by a myth that is perpetuated in our culture. And, and the myth that will hurt all of our relationships is the myth of the one. And the myth of the one is that there is a perfect soulmate for every single person. And your primary job is to just be on the lookout for the one. And even though maybe we logically know that that's probably not true, we still, it seeps into all of our romantic movies. And, and we're like, you know, we just got to look for the one. They're out there somewhere. And this got popularized by a movie in the 1990s called Jerry Maguire. Some of you remember it. And Renee Zellweger and Jerry Maguire, that early in the movie, they get into this elevator and there's this couple that gets on and he's uh, deaf and he signs something to this girl and Renee Zellweger's character can, uh, she knows what he says, but Tom Cruise doesn't. And so she turns to him and when they get out of the elevator and she said, oh, that was so sweet. He said that she completes him. And at the end of the movie, Tom Cruise's character comes in and he walks in and uh, he says to Renee Zellweger, this was a very big night for us. This was a very big night for our little experiment, our company, but it wasn't nearly as good as it could have been because you weren't there with me. And then he looks at her and he goes, you complete me. And she says, shut up. You shut up. You had me at hello. And I have to tell you that out of Everybody in my family, I'll be the one tearing up at that scene because I'm like the hopeless romantic, right? Like the notebook messes me up every single time. The first time we watched the notebook, I don't know if you remember the opening scene, there's like these geese flying across the, river, the pond or whatever. And I'm, I look at Lindsay and I'm like, I don't wanna watch this. I'm gonna be asleep in 10 minutes. At the end of the movie, I'm bawling like a baby. And I look at her and I'm like, I'm gonna buy a journal and we're gonna record our love story just in case you ever catch the amnesia. I'm gonna read it and you'll come back to me. All right, I mean, it's just, I'm a hopeless romantic, all right? So I hate to burst the bubble of other hopeless romantic, <laughs> romantic listening to this, but the whole idea of you complete me is a steaming pile of garbage. It just is for all kinds of reasons, all right? Now, besides the mathematical logic, illogic of it, of that all it takes, if there's only one person perfect for you, then all it takes is one for people to get it wrong and then it messes it up for everybody. Right? But aside from that, here's why this myth is so damaging for single people. All right? It shifts the focus from becoming to finding. And so our whole focus is I got to find the one. I got to find the right person that's going to complete me when the Bible says, has a whole lot more to say about the kind of person you're becoming. If you ever get a group of teenage guys together and you say, hey, just describe your dream girl. They are going to describe a unicorn. Right? They're going to they're gonna describe somebody that's as beautiful as Selena Gomez, the godliness of Mother Teresa, the sense of humor of Zoe Deschanel. And you're just like, wow, guys, that's amazing. Like, she's incredible. And she doesn't exist, but she's incredible. Right? And if you ever find her, she ain't going to marry you because uh, you don't have a job and you're playing too much Call of Duty. All right? <laughs> See, listen, the Bible says nothing about finding the right person. It says a whole lot about becoming the right person. It's found in every page. And I recommend that you read it sometime, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, all right? The Bible says this, here's the collective wisdom of it. If you become the right person, you'll attract the right person. If you become the right person, you'll attract the right person. Could I say it this way? This might be a little bit hard to follow, but become the type of person, the type of person you're looking for is looking for. 
And here's why. Marriage does not make your problems go away when you find the one. What marriage does is it magnifies the problems that you already have as well as theirs. And so you got two imperfect people looking to complete each other with all of their problems and their baggage. It's a recipe for disaster. Now here's why this myth is so problematic for married people, right? It shifts the focus from we to me. Here's what I mean. You'll begin expecting your spouse to do some things for you that they just cannot do. Those words from Jerry Maguire, you complete me, sound so amazing until you stop and think about the amount of pressure that that puts on another person. It places a tremendous amount of weight and expectations on an imperfect, flawed human being, and they cannot possibly fulfill it every single time. And you're setting yourself up for failure. You see, all relationships, this is true, but in marriage in particular, you will either live from a place of forfilling or from filling. So think of like an empty cup. Like I'm either gonna live from a place of filling a cup or I'm looking to have my cup filled. And so all of us walk into a relationship, even just friendships with these questions running in the back of our mind. Will you make me happy? Will you take away my loneliness? Will you ease my insecurities? Will you give me peace, comfort, and safety? Now here's what those questions sound like in a marriage that's struggling. Well, you're not loving enough. You're not, there's not enough time. There's not enough support. There's not enough help. There's not enough affirmation. There's not enough affection. Not enough sex. Not enough spontaneity. Not enough money. Not enough emotional connection. Not making me happy enough. And do you know what sound it makes when two empty people come into a marriage relationship looking for the other to do for them what only God can? The sound that that makes is a large sucking sound that eventually will suck your marriage dry. Dr. Henry Cloud puts it so well when he says marriage, while it is an utterly unique relationship, was never intended to be the place where someone gets all of their needs met. An unresolved dependency on another person for my completeness and happiness is death to my marriage. And I need to stop looking for the spouse that I want and start loving the spouse that I have to give my marriage a chance to be great. Now, at this particular point, because I haven't said anything about this yet, I want to offer this disclaimer right here. I'm not talking about dysfunction and abuse. Anything outside of that. I'm talking about just your normal day-to-day -day imperfection, flaws, sinful mistakes. Here's the deal. When God fills your cup, you put him in the one spot and your spouse in the two so that you are living from a place in which you both have something to give. And according to God's word, it's not two halves that become whole, but two who become one. And if two halves walk into a marriage, they don't make a whole, then they make hell. Now here's what living from filling will do. It will give you the emotional reserves and spiritual insight to face conflict and navigate it together in a way that fuels intimacy rather then stifles it. In Lindsay and I's marriage relationship, it has been not just the times when we've been on vacation together on some beach somewhere that where everything's just going great that we felt the closeness and had great intimacy. I mean, those are great, but it's been the times whenever we've been in conflict and had to get face to face with each other and communicate. That's, it was hard, but when we broke through that, that's when we faced our mo greater moments of intimacy. And you come back to Mr. and Mrs. Solomon 
they get into this conflict and they go back and forth and she gets her friends involved. And thankfully that her friends give her really, really wise counsel and listen to the conclusion that she comes to at the end of verses 10 through 16. She says, my lover is, is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold, his wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside strings of water. They are set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold. That's awesome. All right. Uh, set with barrel. His body is like bright ivory glowing with lapis lazuzzi. I don't know what that means. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover. Listen to this, my friend, my lover, my friend. She comes down to this conclusion that is really at the foundation of every solid marriage relationship. She realizes that they have been in conflict. They're working their way through it, but she lands on the truth that he is her friend. And this exposes another myth that can be detrimental to so many dating and marriage relationships. Uh, it is this one right here. It is the myth that friendship doesn't have much to do with romance. And oftentimes, unfortunately, this myth gets perpetuated in adolescence, particularly with us guys. I mean, it goes both ways, but probably more guys have this story than the ladies do. But uh, where, where you see that you know, your girl in the hallway and man, she catches your eye and you start hanging out with her and then you uh, sort of declare your attraction or your affection towards her. And then she looks at you and she says the words that are like kryptonite to your heart. She says, I just like you as a friend. And you're like, oh, and all of a sudden right there, we felt we got banished to the friend zone. And it's something developed in our mind in those early moments that uh, you're either friends or you're romantic, but never the two shall meet. And this was really unfortunate. And many of us, we just sort of have carried that into our other relationships. Now here's why this is so unfortunate is that friendship is so critical in the foundations of your relationship and in the ongoing nature of your relationship. Um, there's a phrase that oftentimes gets used in our society when you get married to somebody, it's called tying the knot. And so you, you, you tied the knot on your wedding day. And the definition actually of a knot is the interweaving of uh, two uh, um, sources of material that are designed to bear a load. So when you tie a knot, it's designed to bear a load. And so how many of you have ever tied a knot? Maybe you've been moving, maybe you, you tied a knot on the, uh, uh, the trailer and then you're drawing down the road, there's lots of bumps, you get a pothole and all of a sudden you see stuff falling out onto the road because the knot came untied. And you don't just go, well, you know, I tied it once, I should hold. No, you actually go back and you retie the knot and you strengthen the knot. And many of us, when we got married, we, we tied the knot and we thought that the knot would hold if we found the one. If we married the right person, then the knot should hold. And we've kind of been conditioned within our culture to fall in love. Now, here's the deal. Anybody can tie the knot and anybody can fall in love. All it takes to fall in love is just chemicals and hormones. But to stay in love requires a decision and a commitment. And many of us thought the knot would hold, but then we experienced some changes in life. 
and we went through some seasons of real struggle and difficulty and challenge in our marriage relationship and the knot came loose. And one of the things that I've heard from a lot of couples over the years, whether they found myself them, themselves in my office and we're talking things through and they've been in a season of conflict for a long, long time. And they tried everything. They've been to counseling, they've been to therapy, they've gone to conferences, they've read books together, they've been in and out of a pastor's office and they just look exhausted. And they'll look up at me and they'll say, it just shouldn't be this hard. And with all compassion, I, I wanna look back and say, where did you hear that? Where did you get that idea? Just, I, it's gonna be hard even if you're completely compatible. Why? Because I'm a sinful, flawed, broken, imperfect human being. And so are you. And so it's gonna be a struggle. And, but you know what? Anything worthwhile in life, it's worth the hard work. Now, once again, can I just say, I'm not talking about um, dysfunction. I'm not talking about repeated unfaithfulness. I'm not talking about abuse. But aside from those things, when did you ever get the idea that it was supposed to be easy? A professional baseball player doesn't walk back to the dugout and go, man, it just shouldn't be this hard to hit a fastball. A surgeon shouldn't say, you know what? It just shouldn't be this hard to do open heart surgery. A woman in labor shouldn't, never says, you know, it just shouldn't be this hard to give birth to it. Well, that, that one, maybe she does, all right? <laughs> but for any of us, anything that's worthwhile in life is gonna require some effort and it's gonna be a lot of hard work. And tying the knot is one thing, but you gotta come back and you gotta retie the knot over and over and over again through ongoing and consistent communication connection and maybe periodic counseling. Now listen, you've likely heard all that before, but all this fits under this umbrella right here. The key to keeping the knot tight in your marriage is friendship. In fact, maybe if I could uh, say it this way, don't just work on your marriage, but work on your friendship. Begin to think about it that way. See, uh, many times our marriage relationships got into trouble because we've been neglecting the friendship for far too long. We just sort of drifted from each other. Like when we were dating, like we in courting, like we, we were great friends. We, I mean, guys are notorious for this. Like we study the girl that we're going after. And we know her favorite drink at Starbucks and we know her favorite color and her favorite flowers and we know her favorite movie. And we're constantly just thinking about her and thinking about how we can woo her. What, what are we doing? We're, we're taking a great interest. And then once we finally get married, we're like, okay, I got her. And you stop chasing her, you stop pursuing her. And ladies, you, you oftentimes in dating relationships, you'll speak words of, of courage into that man and, and you'll admire him and you'll love on him. And then we, we get married and then, then maybe the focus gets directed towards something else. What ends up happening? We don't mean for it to happen, but we just slowly begin to drift and the, the friendship gets picked away at little by little by little. See, there's three postures to every marriage relationship. The first is just like back to back. When your marriage gets to, the, and there will be seasons of this. And this is like a season where it's adversarial, it's defensive. There's a lot of blame going on. There's another uh, posture, it's shoulder to shoulder. You're just sort of like glorified roommates, business partners, trying to raise a family. But then there's 
face to face. And this is what we want to continue to come back to on a consistent basis. We're going to get back to back sometimes. There's going to be times when we're going to argue, we're not going to see eye to eye. We're going to be shoulder to shoulder. The calendar is coming. We've got to get the kids around to do their appointments. We've got work responsibilities. We've got to keep coming back to face to face. It's intentionally making time to communicate and to connect. And you begin to ask the question, what are the keys to my spouse's heart? And this is where like date nights come into play. This is where, listen, when was the last time that you took a vacation with your spouse without kids? Hey, if your kids are along, it's great, but it's not a vacation. It's a trip, all right? <laughs> you, you need a vacation, like with, just with your spouse, just to reconnect. Guys, this means lots of non-sexual affection. This is a hug with no other strings attached. If you think of something kind to say to your spouse, don't just think it, say it, text it, like right then. Man, I was just thinking about you today. You do such a good job with the kids. Man, you work so hard. Like you, you, I'm so grateful for you every single day. Listen, ladies, I know that many of you are married to a man. He is not the spiritual leader you want him to be. And my heart goes out to you. Can I just say that he will not become the spiritual leader you want him to be by you continuing to tell him that he's not the spiritual leader that you want him to be? Here's why, is because he becomes what you see him as. Did you know that? That he may not let you know this, but your opinion of him matters more than anyone else in the world. Listen, uh, as soon as I get done preaching every Sunday, I, uh, after I talk to a few people in the lobby, I, I, I go back to my office and that's where I meet my wife and my kids. And usually we kind of huddle up. It's usually the first time I've seen them uh, during the day because I usually leave before they get up and, uh, and then we'll go to lunch. And as soon as, I, I just sit in my office like this. And like, as soon as Lindsay walks around the corner, I just go, what'd you think? Like, I just wanna know what she thought of the message. And when she walks in and she goes, Aaron, that was incredible. Like God really spoke to me through that. That message was so powerful. Um, that's all I need to hear. I don't care what y'all think. <laughs> I'm like, like man, my wife thought it was good. I'm just like walking out, like, whoo, whoo, right? Because I just, I just wanna know what she thought. Ladies, you, you have no idea the power of your words. And see, oftentimes the thing that will help restore sick marriages back to health it's just a couple beginning to work on their friendship again. When was the last time you just looked at your spouse and said, will you be my friend? I know it kind of sounds corny, but maybe that's the place to begin, especially if things have begun to disintegrate. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about this. In John 15, if you're familiar with that passage, it's oftentimes called the vine and the branches. And Jesus is giving us insight into how we grow spiritually. And he says, it's not about what you do. It's not about how much you achieve. He said, it's everything to do with just remaining connected to me. Abide. And he goes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And all the branch needs to do is stay connected to me. And if you go and you read John 15 later today, one of the things that you'll see is that Jesus uses this word over and over again. These two words, remain, or these three words, remain in me, remain in me, remain in me, remain. In, he keeps saying it over and over again. And then all of a sudden, uh, about halfway down or so, he switches it and he says, remain in my love. And then he says these words in verse 12. This is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says these amazing words. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because the master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. And what, what an amazing statement by 
Jesus himself. This is God in the flesh who he's using friendship to describe how we remain in him. Now, I want you to see how this works, all right? You cultivate your faith by strengthening your friendship with God. You wanna grow in your faith? Then grow in friendship towards God. Jesus says, that's simple, spend lots of time with me. That's why we talk all the time about getting people to Jesus, getting people to Jesus, getting people to Jesus. It's not just something we say, it's what Jesus himself said about cultivating your faith. Now you take that same logic into your dating and marriage relationships. Cultivate your romance by strengthening the friendship you have with your spouse. And I know right now, maybe some of you are in a marriage relationship and you are so, your horns are so locked up with each other. You just, you're cross-eyed looking at each other. Can you just take a deep breath, push back from the table and say, what would it look like if we just begin to work on our friendship again and see what might happen from that? Not long ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and he was telling me about a married couple in his church that uh, were separated and They'd been married for over 10 years, had kids and uh, been in and out of counseling and he had moved out. And it was their first time to get together in several months just to talk. And both of them were hurting. They didn't really know fully what to say. They talked for about two hours trying to just sort through some stuff. At the very end of the conversation, she said it was really awkward to say goodbye because we didn't know how to do that. She said, uh, we've been married for over 10 years and, and uh, but now, you know, we hadn't seen each other in several weeks and we didn't know like, uh, how do we say goodbye? Do, like, do we say, I love you? Do we hug? Do we, do we high five? Like, well, like, what do we do? And she said, my husband picked up on that. It felt very awkward, like we were dating again. <laughs> and she said, he just simply looked back at me and he just very tenderly said, can we pray? And she said those words hit her like a flood of emotion because he had never asked her that question before. And maybe that's just where you can begin right now. That maybe right now you could just go home and you just, you just keep running into dead end after dead end after dead end in your marriage relationship. One of the things that I'm just perceiving is that this past pandemic year, I've talked to couples and they've said, we've never felt closer. This pandemic brought us so close together. And then other couples who've said, this actually pulled us further apart. There's very little in between. And maybe right now you're the part that's like, this is pulling us apart. And maybe where you can begin is you can go home today and you can just simply say, can we pray? Can we pray and can we just cry out to God? Maybe you tried everything else. You've read all the self-help books. You've talked to your friends. You've gone to counseling. You haven't prayed. What if you just got on your knees together and prayed and asked God to give you the strength to build your friendship? Because that's where it's at. And I'll tell you what will give you the strength to do this is when you get right with God. That when you come back into a relationship with Jesus, and maybe today, if that's the first step you need to take so that this next step can be reconciliation with your spouse, you can simply text the word Jesus to 87221. And our team would love to come around you and help you take those next steps. Hey, can I just tell you this? I know this is a heavy message. I know it's super emotional, especially if you're in a troubled relationship right now. I love you. I love you and don't give up. There's a God who loves you way more than I do. And he is the God of second chances. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now. I thank you so much for this church and these people. And I know that this is a tough subject to listen to for all kinds of reasons. But God, I pray that your spirit would give us just what we needed to hear. And I pray that we would have the courage to apply it to our lives and to not take one more step without crying out to you and asking you 
for the strength that only you can give. We want to abide in you. We want to stay connected to you so that we can live from a place of forefilling rather than from filling. So God, please hear our prayers and our cries in this moment together. I pray, God, that you would simply declare to Satan right now, you can't touch our marriages. That right now you would bind them and protect them because we know that there's an enemy that wants to bring them down. So we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.